Keep moving. Uh, man, y'all look fantastic. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, great to be with you. Great to be here at our Christ City offices here on 8th Street, Northeast Washington, D.C. Uh, Christmas Eve. Everybody, all your shopping done. Got your stuff wrapped up under the tree. Exactly no. One person. Great. Good. Thanks for showing off. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's this day, like the day before. It's filled with anticipation and excitement of of like what tomorrow can bring. I mean, it just sort of, it's palpable in my house, I'm sure in yours. Like we're all, like, you know, everybody is, there'd be like an anticipation of like tomorrow, everyone sort of woke up, woke up early today at my happening. You know, they're just kind of giddy and excited and antsy and they're filled with like this, I can't waitness and it's just like, ah! <laughs> but you gotta wait. You got one more day. So we gotta do. We gotta. We gotta wait for uh, for God to arrive. Christmas Eve is about holding out just a bit longer for the one who would and who will rescue us. Tomorrow we will celebrate our rescuer's arrival. We'll celebrate Jesus' birth. But but today, today we got one more day of anticipation. This is, after all, what so much of Advent is about, of, of anticipation, of, of waiting, of holding out and holding on for Jesus. Today we're in the fourth week of our journey of Advent, wherein we've been reflecting on what it means to wait for God. Each week for the past four weeks of Advent, we've considered those from the Old Testament who uh, waited, not in a passive sense, but in an active, seeking, listening acting sense of the word of waiting those that waited for God to show up in their lives or in their circumstances or in their families or in their worlds those whose, whose backs were against the wall but trusted in God's never-ending promises of salvation in our opening week of the series we heard of Hagar's story a story of an enslaved oppressed woman who after waiting would experience God's transformative presence in her life and become the first woman in the Bible who would name God. The next week we heard of Sarah's story, a woman who experienced trauma and oppression and shame, yet at the end of her waiting, like Hagar, experienced a God who makes good on God's promises, reminding us that waiting is never ever in vain. Last week we listened to the story of Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, who goes unnamed except in reference to the men in her life. We learned about how she waited for God's rescue to arrive, yet she waited with joy even while surrounded by so much sorrow. And each week over the past four weeks, we've taken these stories of Old Testament heroines of the faith and we've laid them alongside parts of the Christmas story, the angel coming to Mary. John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, Mary's Magnificat, the pairing of these Old Testament saints with New Testament anticipations of Christ's birth, they have meant to prompt in us a collective ache for the day when Christ will come again just as he came on that first Christmas generations ago. This morning we read a prayer from Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament. We've laid her story alongside the first part of the Christmas story in Matthew 1, where Joseph and Mary are anticipating Jesus' birth. Hannah, like so many of the other women that we've considered in this series, she finds herself in a place of vulnerability and depression. She is 
in a fragile situation, fragile economically, fragile socially, and she is crying out to God to rescue her. In 1 Samuel 1, there's a verse, we didn't read this one, but in 1 Samuel 1, a verse that captures her ache and her longing, verse 10, says, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. This was the shape of Hannah's waiting, her long Advent season of anticipation. It was filled with weeping and sorrow and lament. Last week, Pastor Justin asked us the thought-provoking and soul-stirring question of what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? What would bring you joy if it were to arrive this Christmas? We're not sure of the timing in 1 Samuel, but it seems to be years between Hannah's ongoing prayers to the Lord and the arrival of the Lord's answer to those prayers. Years of, of waiting and years of silence. A long silence before we arrive at the prayer of praise that we read in 1 Samuel 2. Years before Hannah's anguish turns to the prayers of my heart rejoices in the Lord. Lord is my horns lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. It would be years before Hannah was able to proclaim in celebration there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah needed salvation from her circumstances, and the shape of Hannah's rescue came in the form of a son who was born to her, the prophet Samuel, whose life is chronicled in the book of 1 Samuel. It can be a long way between the cries of anguish of 1 Samuel 1 and the praise and celebration that's found in 1 Samuel 2. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that some traditions believe that the four weeks of Advent represent the 400 years of silence between the conclusion of the Old Testament book of Malachi and the opening of the Gospel of Matthew. 400 years of silence. Each week of Advent representing 100 years of God's silence and apparent stillness, awaiting the right time for Jesus to arrive into the world. Sometimes... Oftentimes, I think that it's the long silence in the midst of our waiting for God that gives us the most shivers. It can be hard to know what to do with a long pause. Our world today pushes hard against the silence. Filling each moment with noise is a way to pass the time while waiting. One of my favorite writers right now is Latria Graham. In her most recent article, A Quiet Place, she writes about wrestling with both the noise of the world and the quiet of the world. Graham made the transition recently from being a freelance writer, a job that's done mostly on her own in the isolation and quiet of her retreat-like life. To the work of an undergraduate college professor, a job that's done in the chaos of college classrooms and teacher lounges and student field hallways, and in the hum of noise and nonstop, she found herself with uh, hunger pangs for silence. So what she did was she reached out to a friend of hers that leads a nonprofit called Quiet Parks International, which really stirs this introvert's soul, just the name of it. 
It's an organization dedicated to preserving quiet for the benefit of all of life. She writes, I give my friend a call and I tell him about how discombobulated I feel and is there anywhere left in the rapidly developing South where I can find reprieve? Her friend responds, Robbinsville, North Carolina. Joyce Kilmer Memorial Forest. Visit on a Sunday in autumn when the leaves are turning and the winter wren is singing. Go at dawn. That's when the world will be quiet. He tells her that when she gets there, she'll actually have to spend some moments tuning her ear to the quiet. The ears have some of the smallest bones and, and muscles in the whole body. And just a little bit of tension will affect what you can physically hear, he says. His last piece of advice to Latria is, if you're going to truly listen in the quiet, truly hear the silence, you might actually hear something that profoundly changes you, something that you have never heard before or didn't hear that way before. You have to be willing to become changed by what you hear in the silence. She goes to the forest, and in the aftermath of the journey, she comes to realize that even in the silence, even in the quiet, there are things to hear. Friends, maybe that's a helpful, if not altogether healing reminder for us, that in our waiting for God on this Christmas Eve, waiting in moments that feel like God's silence, as we are waiting for one thing or another, waiting for a relationship to be restored, waiting for a career to take off, waiting for a child or waiting for parents, waiting for inclusion or the end to oppression, waiting for the end of war and the end of heartbreak, waiting like Hannah with bitter weeping and a feeling of deep anguish. On days where it feels like we are standing in the spiritual equivalent of the Joyce Kilmer Memorial Forest in the dead silence of God's voice, waiting for God, just as Hagar did, just as Hannah did, just as Mary did, as the world did, waiting for the coming Messiah, let us remember that even God's silence isn't all silence. There are things to hear if we tune our ears to hear them things that may well change us and heal us and reveal to us if we are willing to listen even in the silence of God. Traditionally, each week during Advent, Christians light a candle that represents one of the great Advent themes of hope and peace and joy. And today, we lit the love candle. <laughs> each candle and theme it represents serves to remind us that Jesus is still our light in the darkness and the ultimate source of our hope and peace and joy and love. Perhaps today, the fourth Sunday of Advent, in a season where and we've been considering what it means to wait for God, if what we might hear in the quiet of the night before Christmas is the message that God loves you. As we look back at Jesus' first Advent, a a picture of love emerges. And what we see is a love that breaks into the silence and breaks into our collective waiting, a love that is steeped in sacrifice, a love that is marked by God's unfailing commitment 
to see our redemption and our recovery, to see us know that we are loved passionately by God. As author Anne Lamont says, God's love is the love that goes before, that greets us on the way. It's the help that you receive when you've got no bright ideas left, when you are empty and desperate and have discovered that your best thinking and most charming charms have failed you. Yet God's love is there. This is among God's greatest messages to and gifts to us in Advent. It's the message that God loves us and that love is present to us and is able to dwell in us by faith. It's this amazing message that Jesus loves me, this I know. As basic yet as revolutionary as any news that we could receive or that we could share. It's this message that we celebrate at Christmas. It's this news of God's awe-inspiring love that we say that we want to tell it on the mountain. It's this news that God's love was displayed in Jesus' birth. This is what the joy to the world is. Saints, because the God of the universe loves you and has displayed that love in the birth of Jesus, and because God has always loved you and will continue to love you, you are now invited to love. Love your enemies. Love your family. Love your neighbors. Love strangers. Love those who persecute you. Love those who oppose you. And perhaps the hardest of all to love is to love yourself as God loves you. Father Greg Boyle is a Jesuit priest of the Dolores Mission in the Boyle Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles, the poorest parish in the L.A. Archdiocese. In his book, Tattoos on the Heart, he writes this about love. There is no force in the world better able to alter anything from its course than love. Meeting the world with a loving heart will determine what we find there. We mistakenly place our trust too often in the righteousness of our anger, though we rarely get evidence that this ever transforms anything. Sooner or later, we all discover that love is the only strength that there is. Um, years ago, when I lived in, Fres when I lived in California, um, I was a part of one of the most remarkable men's retreats I've ever been on. Um, it was a retreat, it was hosted by World Impact, which um, is a ministry that focuses on um, developing communities of faith, primarily in economically distressed neighborhoods. Um, the World Impact group, and uh, I, I was living in Fresno at the time, uh, it ministered mostly to uh, gang members in California's Central Valley. And so I went on this retreat, but I uh, went, I was never in a gang, um, but I went on the retreat with five guys that I was in a prayer, uh, we were like a prayer group. It was like me and like four guys, and we're like, hey, here's a men's retreat, let's go. And they weren't in gangs either. They were, uh, all four of them were Mennonites. Uh, Mennonites is like the... <laughs> The strand of Christianity that's rooted in like nonviolence and pacifism. So that's who we were. So it was the five of us, me, four Mennonites, 50 gang members on this uh, men's retreat, Christian retreat center. Got the picture? So, and there's two things I remember from this retreat, which um, one is we played paintball. We had guns <laughs> with, with paint in it, and we ran around <clears throat> and shot each other. <clears throat> What I remember is the Mennonites won every single <laughs> round. No lie. 
Um, and I mean, to this day, I kind of see that as like an act of God with some message about the power of nonviolence. But anyway, the second thing that I remember was during one of the devotional sessions, one of the kids, one of the teenagers, um, he stood up and he, and he read a passage. And I knew the kid, I, I can't recall his name um, right now, but I knew uh, that he was at the camp because he had actually been granted um, a weekend uh, a furlough from the juvenile judge because he was in juvenile probation. And so, so here he was at this retreat, shooting Mennonites, learning about Jesus. <laughs> and he read from 1 Corinthians 13, a passage that speaks so eloquently and deeply about love passage that's most often heard at like weddings and romantic settings though I doubt that this young man knew that and I remember listening to him as he began he stood up he said love is patient love is kind it doesn't envy and he continued saying this in a room filled with those who had been or who were incarcerated, those who had been or were in gangs, but all who desperately wanted another way forward, who needed to know that they were loved by the God who made them, and he just kept on. Love doesn't dishonor. It's not easily angered. It doesn't delight in evil. Love rejoices in the truth. And he read it like it mattered. And he looked out over everyone and proclaimed with astounding surety that love never fails. And he sat down and I believed him. As much as I've ever believed anything in my life, I believed him. Father Boyle would conclude his book by saying, every day we choose to believe this, this truth that God loves us and not just us. Every day we choose to believe this all over again. And we are invited to live as though this truth were true. Saints, siblings, the truth is that you are loved by God. Because at a place in time and history, God displayed that love in the midst of humanity's rebellion towards him in the person of Jesus. Born, lived, preached, died, raised again, demonstrating his love so that we can live as though this truth were true. Live as those loved much by God and empowered to display that love towards our world. Let us hear that message as we wait in the quiet anticipation of our Lord's return. Let me pray for us. Spirit of God, I pray that you would meet us on this Christmas Eve as we anticipate the celebration of your first arrival into our world. And even as we anticipate your next one, God, I pray that you would meet us in whatever ways or spaces that we find ourselves waiting, in whatever silence we find ourselves experiencing. Meet us with the message that you so love the world, that you sent your son. 
pray this in the name of that Son, in Jesus' name. Amen.